Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim, Will Foxley, and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0. I'm Will Foxley, markets reporter for Coindesk. I'm joined today by Ben Edgington, lead product owner of Teku at Consensus. Christine is off today, so just Ben and I, but a special guest. Yep, today we are joined by Coogan Brennan, my colleague at Consensus, who has built out some of the best educational content on Ethereum 2.0. That's right. Coogan will be walking us through his personal staking journey, what it's like leading educational initiatives in crypto, and how he sees the crypto picture writ large. Thanks for being here, Coogan. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, I am not as familiar with your work as Ben is, so I'll probably let him kind of steer the general conversation. But I'll start off with one question about the staking, uh, and, and it kind of ties back to your involvement in Ethereum itself. So why did you gravitate toward educational initiatives and what have been some things that you've learned along the way? You're kind of in like the spot between media and being in crypto itself, where like you're, you're creating a forward-looking product. They're trying to get newbies into this space, but you're also in the thick of it and you have to know like what a BLS key is. So how did you get into Ethereum and how did that role with education kind of start off? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks so much for framing it like that, because the education part has been the North Star, I think, for a lot of the work that I've done in Ethereum. I actually became familiar with crypto back in about 2011. And, and at that time, I actually, I don't come from a, a digital or technical background. I was, I was running a, a tailoring clothing shop in Central Virginia in the United States, and I was working at a uh, bookstore. And someone came in and shared with me about Bitcoin at that time. There's no, no whispers of Ethereum yet. Educated myself. You know, it was really interesting at that point. One of the things that I found was so interesting and, and continues to be so interesting about cryptocurrencies and blockchains and, and Ethereum specifically is how learner-led it can be. It's such a young industry that uh, no one can really claim to be a senior educator or even senior developer so much. So if you sort of assume that it takes five to 10 years to become a senior developer, that time window is, is really small. So I was essentially just sort of journaling my experience about learning what at the beginning, what blockchain was, and then I became more focused on Ethereum. So that's been my journey since about then. I, I started to become more and more interested in the uh, different protocols as they were emerging and, and gaining more traction. And then as a way to build out my understanding, I started to code and learn to code and, and started contributing to the different projects. But throughout all of that, it was uh, a way for me to educate myself. I really appreciate talking with people. I really appreciate connecting those aha moments that people have with blockchain and cryptocurrencies and Ethereum in particular. And so that leads up to today. I work at Consensus with Ben and I work on the developer relations team, which is a very interesting, as you mentioned, sort of a cross between marketing and developers. It's a relatively nascent 
job description, I'd say, developer advocate, developer evangelist, developer relations. Luckily for me, I'm not very good at sales. I'm not actually contributing code at this really high level, but what I do get to do is I get to ask the dumb questions. I get to ask the stuff that people maybe are a little bit nervous to ask because they don't want to seem as though they don't know what they're talking about. So that drove me to uh, write these series of articles. First of all, it was my job, you know, is to describe what's happening in the space. And we run the Consensus Academy Bootcamp, this program that's been running for about five years. And last year we started in September, it was September to December, which lined up really nicely with the launch of uh, Beacon Chain. And so we went on this journey together and then I was able to crystallize it into these series of pieces. It's a long answer to your question, but in my opinion, you know, my career right now and, and my, my work right now is around describing and being sort of a, a very naive user, essentially. I know enough to be dangerous. And so that's why I needed the help of Ben and, and the rest of the Teku team to help on different setting up clients and setting up all these different, setting up the keys and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I, I see these as a series of journals that I wrote, which are technical, but also include a lot of hesitations that I have about certain things and concerns that I have as well as this sort of naive user. Yeah, Coogan, those are terrific uh, articles that you put together describing your staking journey, and I, I enjoyed them immensely. What was it specifically about staking on Ethereum 2 on the beacon chain from the, the earliest days? What was it about that that kind of got your interest? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've invested your, your own ether in this. Uh, you know, you got skin in the game. Uh, right. What was it that sort of provoked you to or, or convinced you this was the thing you, you had to do next? It's a good question. I think it was two things. The, the first is that I have been following the Ethereum community, been a part of the Ethereum community for, for a number of years. This really felt as though something I was obligated to do as a participant, as someone who was able to be there in the early days of the protocol. I, I felt this obligation to stake a lot of people. I don't know, you've had to feel these questions, Ben. A lot of people sort of ask, well, if I can do all this yield farming, if I can get these, you know, 2000% returns on earth, would I, you know, stake up or lock up all these funds for what might not be compared to those returns significantly high. And, and for me, it was this real commitment to the Ethereum community. And in particular, Vitalik did a, a Reddit AMA that I've referenced a number of different times. And, and he talked about how you know, you're not in the Ethereum community today because of the current state of the protocol. You, as an active developer or someone in the community who is able to contribute articles or able to answer questions, are there because it's a, a dynamic, moving, evolving beast. And that is just extremely exciting for me. And I also thought it might be kind of interesting for folks who weren't able to stake solo to get a perspective of one individual's journey through it. So I, I think those are the, the two reasons that I decided to stake. The first being that commitment towards uh, moving the protocol forward, uh, an acknowledgement that public blockchains aren't where we want them to be quite yet. And then the second is it was a really exciting way to be able to write essentially something that would be uh, scary for me to do, essentially. It kind of made my palms sweat to think about locking up that much value. For me, it, those are the markers. 
when I feel that way about a project, I need to lean into it, you know, to be, to be, to be scared about it. And luckily it was not as scary as I thought it was going to be. The community is amazing. Y'all had Fizz on here. Uh, the East Saker community is extraordinary. The Taco community is extraordinary. Just the whole community has been so supportive about this whole launch that it has turned out to be this really wonderful journey. And I feel so proud to be a part of what feels like history in terms of the public blockchains and the future they hold. Very cool. Before we get to kind of specifics on the staking journey, you alluded just now to something I wanted to ask you about, which was in your first article, you kind of contrasted the Ethereum community to the sort of Bitcoin world by saying that the Ethereum community is a community of developers. Can, can you unpack that a little for us? Sure. I, I'm not a, a scholar of Ethereum, of the short Ethereum history, but my understanding of the roadmap has been that not only is proof of stake been baked into the the Genesis block, you can find these really interesting articles from uh, Gavin Wood, uh, from all these sorts of OG Ethereum contributors talking about proof of stake from the, the launch of ETH1 mainnet. You can also see even in the hard fork patterns of updates that the Ethereum community has normalized the development pattern, the mentality that even though the hard forks can be really challenging and they're these all core dev calls, that it's kind of this just extraordinary public experiment in coordination amongst parties who could very well be contentious and at each other's throats. And, and sometimes they are, which is also very interesting to see. I contrasted at the beginning of these articles, what's happening right now with proof of stake, with what happened with segregated witness in Bitcoin, which I, I know is not a new comparison, but it is very apt that something that was, you know, a deviation from the Bitcoin white paper really tore the community apart and uh, is still something that is such a hot button issue. And I think it's just something that's not appreciated because I think proof of stake is going well. The beacon chain, knock on wood, is going well right now. It's not maybe appreciated as much just how radical an idea this is, that you would have a public blockchain like Ethereum, which is holding not only so much just locked value, so to speak, but also just commercial potential. They have all these, you know, huge enterprise folks coming in saying, we really would like to build on Ethereum. We would like to invest in this. I just think it's extraordinary that there is a vanguard of folks in the community saying, yeah, absolutely. And we want to keep it interesting. We don't want to sit on our laurels. We don't want us to settle on this protocol. We want to make sure that we're pushing things forward. So I also think as an educator, it gives me this really privileged standpoint to be able to talk about zero knowledge proofs, to talk about layer two scaling, to talk about the cap theorem, all these things that I never would uh, envision myself learning about, but learning about in this applicable way, because the Ethereum chain is one that not only has this enormous network and the attendant net network effects, but is willing to move forward despite that. I think that's a, a really admirable trait of the network that isn't necessarily, shouldn't be assumed to be the case. 
Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of interesting tangent conversations here. And then one of them I want to dig into is that your job is kind of meshed in between media and development, like we said earlier, but you're also at consensus, which itself is kind of in an interesting spot as like an advocate for a public blockchain, but it's a private company that, correct me if I'm wrong, is trying to earn some money on the side, right? You're kind of in an interesting spot in like two different ways, which is very cool. Must be <laughs> your data must be like kind of complex. So I'm wondering from a consensus standpoint, maybe Ben can chime in on this too. What is it like working at consensus? What are the goals that you guys have laid out for yourselves when you're talking with these enterprise applications that want to use Ethereum, that want to use the public blockchain that anonymous Discord users are building? What is that like for you guys? And like, what is your, your end goal or your motivation working at consensus and working with like these, these firms are coming in with, with deep pockets? I'll let, I'll let Ben go first on that one, on that minefield. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, where to start? Yeah, I mean, Joe Lubin remains a founder of Ethereum, and that still has an enormous uh, importance for consensus as a company. I think our future as a company is very strongly tied to the future success of, of Ethereum. So there is definitely a will to invest in the good of Ethereum. Whether or not there's a sort of, you know, a dollar value directly attached to that, actually working on the protocol, building Ethereum 1 clients, Ethereum 2 clients, building public goods like uh, Infura and so forth are all part of the picture and, and investments in the future success of consensus via the future success of Ethereum, whether or not we can monetize them today. So that is a very kind of simplistic answer to the question. Uh, there are more directly revenue-making models uh, around, like, you know, there's MetaMask swaps, there's our whole enterprise Ethereum play and Quorum and all of that, and paid tiers on Infura and all sorts of other things coming down the line. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting chimera thing, both working on this public good network and also, you know, we've got to pay the wages, but uh, you know, Coogan and I are very grateful for that. And Joe Lubin is ultra supportive. I mean, he is, has been nothing but encouraging about the work that I wanted to do in public Ethereum and has supported me every single step of the way. And I'm pretty sure that Coogan would say the same. Absolutely. It's a very interesting question. And the way that I think about consensus is it's this place that holds extraordinary paradoxes, extraordinary contradictions within itself. So what I'm about to say about consensus is, is simply my opinion about it, but I wholeheartedly agree with Ben in the same way that I was mentioning the Ethereum community has this wild dreamer personality type, folks who very easily could sit on their laurels, sell off their crypto assets and live in an island somewhere uh, in Oceania. Joe Lubin is someone who did that in the original Wall Street market and then was so motivated to move back into the world and come out of retirement to do this work. So not, not to be too great leadery worship of Joe, but I do think it's important to note that one of the reasons why Ethereum has been able to weather the bear market that annihilated projects left and right in this space has been the ability to fund wild dreamers in the way that Ben is mentioning. You know, MetaMask is this project that right now we have MetaMask swaps, which is fantastic and it's totally extraordinary. But for a very long time, MetaMask was a real incubator project in the sense that it was getting extraordinary usage and it's got a killer, killer team. 
But that wouldn't exist, I don't believe, uh, in another environment. And so I think to be an employee of, of consensus is to live with great contradictions. That's the way that I see it. And it's something that I think is really fascinating and it leads to very interesting conversations in the workplace. I saw a lot of discussion about uh, consensus 1.0 and there's sort of being this wild culture. And I joined right at the end of that culture. So I got to see a bit of that. And then I've been able to see the transitions recently. Just to echo what Ben said, I'm just incredibly grateful to be able to be on one of those circles orbiting around right now and, and able to explore these ideas and these technologies in a way that I'd, I'm 100% positive wouldn't be possible in any other company. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. Yeah, thanks for putting up with that question. I appreciate it. There's, I think a lot of people that outside looking in are like wondering what's going on at consensus. And I think like the simple answer is they're just building useful protocols and attachments for interacting with Ethereum, right? But, you know, everyone's looking at, at the pie and looking at the biggest piece. So I want to kind of move over back to the educational initiative part of what you do at consensus and specifically in the ETH2 staking journey that you went on. What are some things that you learned along the way that are notable months later looking back on the project? What are some things that you wish you would have done differently? And now that we're four or five months past or four months past the Beacon Chain launching, uh, what do you tell the people who are interested in now getting on and validating ETH2? The ETH 2.0 is really is a portion of what we're doing because even though I find it tremendously exciting, with uh, ETH 1.0 main chain. I know that's not the actual terminology I should be using now, but I'm just going to use it because it's a uh, habit uh, until I get uh, shamed into doing otherwise. There's also interesting sidechain work, layer two work, that sort of thing. And, and so my main focus of attention is as part of the developer relations team, which is providing tutorials. And for me, running this bootcamp that we run every year, which runs the whole gamut of sort of blockchain concepts, Ethereum 1.0 application, Ethereum 2.0 now. Going into it as an educator, particularly an educator working in a field where things that happen this week are can be stale and broken a week later. And so one question that I ask myself a lot at the rest of the folks on my team ask ourselves a lot is, what are some of the evergreen bits of knowledge that we know will be valuable regardless of whether the roadmap changes or essentially future-proofing knowledge. And the way that I see that is building frameworks for students in terms of understanding the principles and the concepts behind blockchain generally, not even Ethereum specifically. Obviously, we use Ethereum tooling and we do that sort of thing. But what's been very interesting is there are things as, you know, Ethereum Study Master is a great example of to do proof of stake requires a tremendous amount of education. To do any sort of blockchain requires education. I, I've been fairly convinced of my job security because education is almost the first, and in my opinion, the greatest asset that blockchain has to offer because it's such a paradigm shift. You have to learn these fundamental principles and, and they're always a mind bender and it just takes time. And I think there's no exception for ETH2 proof of stake. So coming at it from an educator, that's sort of my general 
approach is, okay, where's the signal in this noise? Where is the wireframes that we know won't change? Because there's also a, a real fatigue that can happen if developers are taught a certain concept, invest a lot of time and energy, and then it changes. So it's onboarding them into this culture of, of continual change. It's a really fun balance to strike. So that was sort of my first mentality going in. The second was to essentially talk about what are the technical elements that are required going into it. And you asked sort of what were some of the things that I went in thinking about. And the one biggest thing that I realize now is my mentality around mining, and I believe you all have mentioned this on podcasts before. My mental model for mining was all those huge server rigs that you always see in discussions of Bitcoin and, and even Ethereum or any proof of work, these huge server farms. And oh my gosh, if I'm going to be the equivalent of a, a miner on this network, I'm going to need to have the equivalent of that. And so I went in really guns blazing and I said, okay, I need this really solid rig and it needs to be on Amazon Web Services because that's what the CIA uses you know, to hell with centralization. It's just got to be battle tested. And it couldn't be further from the truth. I have a, a colleague, Matt Garnett, who was quietly in my ear saying, you know, I, I don't think you really need to have this big of a rig. And I said, hush, 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 Matt. I, you don't understand. I, I'm creating these huge blocks and I'm going to, you know, there's going to be all this return. But as y'all mentioned, the real value that validators provide is attestation of these sort of small pings. and. I had the example of, I'm, I'm here in Austin, Texas, and there was a big uh, snow storm and, and we lost power in the city for about a week. And during that time, my validator went offline and it was a bit like falling off a horse. You never get slashed for inactivity, just as sort of a, a principle, sort of a first principle. But instinctually, I thought I would, you know, so I was, you know, I had no power. Uh, my family was looking for hot water. And here I was trying to uh, text Ben Edgington and Meredith Baxter about how much time I had before I got slashed. Really, that came from this mentality that I need to have this huge, you know, always up server and it needed to be running all this huge heavy duty machinery. When in fact, the goal for proof of stake has always been being able to run on a home machine. Uh, there is a, a post from 2015 at the beginning of the launch of ETH1 talking about we need to have a unit talking about, you know, the Raspberry Pi computation unit, because that's what our goal should be. People should be able to run these on Raspberry Pis. And there's a great Ethereum on ARM project that I wanted to shout out while I was on this podcast, which actually they just a couple of days ago released their images that they're using successfully running validators on Raspberry Pi. So I think to answer your question, that was the biggest hurdle mentally for me to get over was, okay, I'm not running a huge server farm. The second thing is my value is going to be coming from attestations and contributing to that mesh, the power of a distributed community that can do that work in terms of making sure the network is moving forward and all those sorts of things. What would be your advice, Kugan, uh, for people who felt that they would like to stake on the beacon chain? Perhaps they're a little unsure about the various options available. What would you advise and whom would you advise to do what? Hmm. <laughs> if they're coming to me, I would say go to Ben Edgington is actually what I would say. And I actually want to turn the question on to you. But uh, since I am in the uh, position of guest here, I, I will dutifully answer the question. But 
so sort of what I say to folks is I, I gave that spiel about the experimental nature of the Ethereum network. I urge a bit of caution right now. I think we're still in the early days. I've reached out to folks who were running Ethereum mining rigs in 2016, 2017, where it was still fairly feasible to run from your garage. And I feel like those are maybe the candidates of folks who would want to play around with this. I do think that it's still very early days. And, and I actually would encourage folks to wait for staking pools, decentralized staking pools. Madison Asher, I know it's been mentioned on here before, but the Ethereum due diligence folks who are doing surveys of staking pooling protocols and the best way to do that. I would encourage folks to sort of wait and see and see how that shakes out. I'm always urging people to go further and further down, down the wormhole. And this is a great way to do it. It's a great way to see how things are going and to really get your hands on the protocol and get an understanding of that from a first person point of view. What do you think though, Ben? What, what do you say at this point? <laughs> I think you gave the perfect answer, Coogan. I cannot improve on that. That's at all. <laughs> not true. That can't be true. That can't be no, true. It pretty much accords with what I'm thinking. Uh, I mean, do you obsess about your validator? Are you checking it every day? I mean, how I, do you sort of monitor it? It is yeah. a Tamagotchi for the Ethereum nerd is the validator. You know, I look at it on Beacon Chain app and I do fret over it. Not, not really. I'm sort of joking, but Honestly, I, I think the Beacon Chain app is a great notice because they will actually email me when there are issues with the validator. It was a little bit unnerving to get a series of messages sort of consistently saying your validator is, is missing these attestations when we lost power here. I'm surprised at the, the sort of set it and forget it nature. I, I do think, though, that there is a bit of complacency on my part in terms of upgrades, software updates, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to frame that because I would like to write a post about it, but I'm not totally sure how to do it in the best way possible. And this might be a little too esoteric, but it does seem like a bit of gray area where, you know, the Teku team or the Prism team will say, you know, we recommend people upgrade or at your leisure, if you want to upgrade for this release or that sort of thing. And so that is something I've upgraded a few times. I've, I've migrated it from platforms and wrote about it for, for these series of articles, I am loath to touch it. I, I'm worried that I will break it. That might not be the correct thing to admit, but, but it's just true. So I think I am a little nervous to touch it and to upgrade it unless it's absolutely necessary. That's a good point at which to recommend to anybody who is staking themselves and uh, using their own Ethereum OneNode that it is imperative that you upgrade before the 14th of April, because that's when the Ethereum One Berlin fork is due to uh, go live. And after that date, if you haven't upgraded your ETH1 node, you probably won't be able to propose any ETH2 blocks. So uh, just a, a, a reminder for everyone there. I think this is going out before the 14th, right? So <laughs> yeah, sure. You got, you, so you get it done. Yeah. Shout out to Core Devs as well. Getting through these hard forks is crazy work. I know this is an ETH2 podcast, but I always feel like it's worthwhile shouting out the uh, incredible work that those folks do. Well, the whole thing's converging now, isn't it? And this is one of the very interesting things that's going to evolve over the next few months, how this sort of Right. dynamic of the ETH2 rapid development and the experimentation that we've been doing on the beacon chain and bringing that to life 
that now intersects with the Ethereum One governance world, which is, you know, from my point of view, somewhat painfully slow, quite onerous <laughs> process and kind of of necessity, right? It's guarding mm. a, a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated to see how it plays out when these two worlds collide and how the next few months go, because we've got a lot of decisions to make. We're going to have to start wrapping up here, but Coogan, I want to direct people towards the content you're putting out. So where can people find the things that you are writing and talking about? Sure. So if you go to consensus.net backslash blog, that is the excellent, excellent blog that is maintained by the consensus crew. Shout out to James and Lisa and Madison and Anthony and Robbie and all these great people who are putting together uh, material for that blog. Consensus Academy is my my main vehicle. And if you go to Consensus Acad at Twitter, uh, no space or dash between those and follow us there, we're always blasting stuff out about educational material and code tests and uh, fun stuff like that. Perfect. Well, if you're listening to this, go give that a follow. Uh, we want to thank you guys for tuning into another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. Ben and I will be back next Thursday for insights. I think Christine will be back as well. So that'll be a welcome addition. Uh, of course, subscribe to all Coindesk podcasts for notifications and alerts when the next episode airs. If you haven't done so already, take a look at our newsletters. I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2.0 development, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. You can also subscribe to Christine and Will's weekly newsletter called Valid Points by going to coindesk.com. If you have any questions you'd like answered on this podcast, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week for mapping out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Will Foxley and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.